0: Welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. People just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with researchers involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On April 21st, 2021, we talked with Dr. Ali Elabedi, an immunologist who studies humoral immune responses after virus infection. Ali obtained his BS in pharmaceutical sciences from Cairo University, Egypt, and then his PhD studying influenza virus with Richard Webby at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. He then moved to Emory University in Atlanta where he was a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of Rafi Ahmed. At Emory, Ali studied human B-cell responses to influenza and Ebola viruses. In 2017, Ali joined the Department of Pathology and Immunology at Washington University School of Medicine, where his lab continues to study B-cell responses to influenza virus and now SARS-CoV-2. In 2021, he was promoted to an associate professor. Happy to have you with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us about yourself? How did you become interested in virology and immunology?
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, So I, this actually goes back to um, when I was an undergrad in pharmacy school in Egypt in Cairo University. This was, uh, it's specifically actually, I was in my third year uh, at the time. It was uh, probably 2001 2002 and at the time we had uh, it's actually was a pharmacy school so there wasn't much going on in terms of teaching the microbiology immunology we had we had one course in microbiology and then there is another one uh, about immunology actually immunology didn't have a course by itself it was part of of uh, like a microbial pathogenesis and immunology and at the time, I, I remember that was uh, the first lecture that we had actually about immunology. I was, uh, I was like, uh, I don't know what would be the expression for it. I was like, done, this is it. And that, that's, that's, I was fascinating from the first moment. And I just was, I started like, uh, you know, and it's really, when you go to a foreign school, especially in Cairo and probably, it's a lot of material to cover. Lots of organic chemistry, lots of inorganic chemistry, lots of all kinds of chemistry, pharmaceuticals, formulation, and all of that, and pharmaceutics. Oh, my God. And it's a lot of material. So it's, you barely have time to actually do anything outside of your course material. But because of the, just from the first moment, I was, I was struck. So I was just going to the library and reading, getting the textbook from, you know, immunology textbook and starting to read more and more about outside of really of that small piece in the course I just tried and that's from that moment i i it's one of the few moments and actually that i really had a clear that this is it uh i'm i'm, I'm not even going anywhere else i'm going to continue on this and that was the time and i i continued for that um i f- even after i finished in the pharmacy school so and, and the way it works in Egypt is or at least in that system, education system that you have actually, you can be, uh, when, uh, w- once you graduate and you have a relatively high GPA kind of, uh, you, you are offered to be an a, a assistant, teaching assistant in the same school. Uh, and this is usually offered for the top maybe, uh, top 10, 20 students. And then, um, and then you, they allow you to pick, depends on you know, your rank, is which department you would like to. Again, everyone in my class knew that from that moment that I will be going for this immunology because I want to teach immunology. And so again, it was, it was a, it, everything I decided after that moment was based on this. I want to continue to study immunology. And then when I came to, applied for grad schools in the US, I, this is the same thing in 2006 when I came, I only got accepted in the University of Tennessee. Um, uh, there are many reasons, but we, we, basically we really don't have, we didn't really know how to uh, apply for grad schools there. It's just, uh, it, was something, it was something, yeah, we can, we, 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 uh, we, as an international student, you really don't, you, for example, one of the things that I remember very clearly is personal statement or a statement, of this, this thing is just, I didn't know what a personal statement is. So, so we never actually took, I, I can imagine how my application looked like and I don't blame 15, 16, I think 15 schools that rejected my application. Because <laughs> it, it was clear to them that I wasn't really, didn't really spend time writing my personal statement. Um, so I, I came here and I, and then I worked in St. Jude, that hostel which I didn't know exist before I came. Um, but it was a I'm, I'm very happy that I actually went to Memphis, Tennessee because of St. Jude is a wonderful place to work on. And, and, and from there, again, I, I focused on immunology. It was an inter, interdisciplinary program, so you can pick the field and, and the track that you want to go for. And again, I want, it was very clear that I will go for immunology. The only twist there is that I couldn't find all of the immunology labs. Uh, at least at the time at St. Jude, did not have a place for rotation. And, uh, and, and, and uh, I was very disappointed, but w- one way I did it is I just went for um, a virology lab. Um, at the time, it was actually, it was Peter Doherty, who is uh, who is a Nobel laureate for 1996, Nobel laureate for immunology, who was, had a part-time, he was re- part, partially running his lab in immunology in St. Jude at the time. And he was using influenza virus to study uh, T-cell responses uh, and using influenza as a model. So I tried to, I, I remember clearly emailed him multiple times to try to put it in his lab. And he would say that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm spending a lot of time in Australia. And, and it, it was a time that it wasn't clear that, and he didn't have uh, interest in actually getting any students. But because he's working on influenza, I thought if I work in an influenza lab, then I can potentially actually do some sort of collaboration and with his lab and, and that way I can get into the immunology part of things. And this is how it works. So I, worked up in, in, I ended up working in the Richard Woldy lab in uh, Richard and uh, in, in, in it's pure virology lab looking at influenza uh, viruses. But from there, it's from the first moment, my project was really directed can we start a collaboration right away because that's what, what I wanted to do and uh, it worked out well we, it's funny because we still uh, the lab after Peter retired uh, uh, his main postdoc at the time is now running the lab Paul Thomas and, and, and funny enough we still I still work with Paul even at the time I did the rotation with him but uh, and then my PhD project collaboration with him and and uh, we you know he continued there but I went different ways and and here I am I'm still I'm still working on influenza actually so uh, that was really the model that I started this I really wasn't very uh, keen about influenza or any other model uh, infectious model I was really keen about that, studying the immune response to an infectious pathogen uh, it happened to be influenza because of uh, Peter Doherty there and the, the, his lab. But then uh, I, I really fell in love with influenza. So I'm, I'm fascinated by it, too. So now I'm working on influenza.
0: Right. So I guess to follow up on that, can you tell us a little bit about some of the research you were doing before the COVID pandemic to kind of give us sort of a background sort of of the type of questions that you're interested in or what you were thinking about?
1: So. Yeah, that's so. What happened after I finished my PhD now is I had a chance to actually now uh, to go to an immunology lab, and that's when I went to Rafi Ahmed's lab in uh, Emory, and I, I was very you know I I was very determined. Now I really need to get uh, uh, proper immunology training, and uh, and you get that in Rafi's lab. So you 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 go there and 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 um, and but then at the time because of w- my work and PhD I, I developed a, a huge interest in B cells, and and one of the things I told Rafi and he's really a world uh, you know one of the one of the leaders in T cell immunology so I told him I really interested in B cells and Rafi was looking for someone to do B cells and influenza in his lab, so for him it was oh, of course yeah he didn't. Just you do B cells and you do influenza. And I said, great. So, I uh, the other thing that I didn't know before coming to, going to his lab is working with humans. I, I was only looking at animal models, work with ferrets and mice during my PhD. And I was thought I'll continue to do at least mouse work in Rafi's lab, but he actually was more interested in me working in Wasn't very interested in that in the first year, but slowly I realize that there are some interesting questions you can address there uh, and important ones um the, the one thing I, I i did a lot of work in humans the one thing that during my time with rafi it was only looking for blood and that was something i always was uh not very satisfied with that you you, although we have can answer kind of some important questions i always thought that this is something not we we, we are not looking at the full picture and that has been uh, has been really the the motivation for me to what else can we can we dig deeper <laughs> literally so can we actually look at a can we look at a, some can we go to can we have a sample can can we do something to allow us to learn more about why this vaccine is not working optimally and i couldn't do uh, obviously as a postdoc you can y- y- there's much there's there's a limit for how much push you can do, or how far you can go, and, and I did I don't talk to. And that time during the end of my, or toward the end of my postdoc fellowship, you know, 2015, 16, uh, emerging studies starting to come about uh, using fine needle aspiration in non-human primates after to look at the B cell responses and in uh, the draining lymph nodes. Uh, and again, in non-human primates, you are allowed to, to it's it's a much easier, more feasible studies to do this, not only to look at peripheral blood, but look at B cells as they become uh, activated and differentiate to what we know as germinal center B cells in the draining lymph node. So um, so there were uh, this is was pioneered by Shane Crotty and uh, La Hoya, and he was working with actually uh, folks at Emory at the time in the, uh, with the non-human primate facility. So I thought um, this will be something that we can hopefully do in humans at one day. And during the time, so uh, so when actually I came here at uh, at WashU in two thousand seventeen, I actually uh, you know I, I I during the time that I was interviewing, I actually mentioned that this will be something uh, I would like to do or explore this possibility and. Um, and I, I, I said, I, I think we just need a radiologist. I was very, at the time, obviously instilled some in many aspects, very naive to the, to how things are. But, but I just talked to uh, Rachel Presti, which is in, in infectious disease here. And I told her, Rachel, can, if, if there's a chance that I can talk to a radiologist, uh, especially in ultrasound, I have this crazy idea about if we can do this monkey studies in human. And mm-hmm. she, uh, she said, uh, well, I do have a friend. Uh, and, uh, she, and she told me, Sherry Tiffy here in Radiology, can she, we, we, right, she knows. And she said, I can introduce you when you come. Um, so I thought, okay, that's great. So I thought we will just, uh, there's a chance, there's a potential. So I, when I came for my, just probably my first week here, I actually met with Sherry and Rachel and I said, here's what I think, here's what I would like to do is to recruit healthy people, somehow convince them to give us not only blood, but also allow us to use ultrasound to sample the draining lymph node by fine needle aspiration before and after vaccination. Uh, and then and then I will, and then I remember that Sherry, said, well, let's assume you are, you convince them she asked me many important questions that I wasn't really. So let's assume you convince someone to do that. So how you? What are you going to do with the cells? And 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 second, she said, um, uh, yeah. So that was the first one, and she said. And the second thing is, which lymph node you're talking about? Uh, and this is will tell you exactly how uh, very almost clueless I was at the time because I told. Her, the accelerated lymph node, of course, because we are draining acceleration. She told me there's probably 30 lymph nodes in that area. Which one do you want to sample? <laughs> I said, 30. I thought mice has only <laughs> they only have one lymph node in each spine. <laughs> Why you have 30 in humans? And and that took us a really know uh, in us in, a, in a, I would say like a, a a journey to like look try to decide which one are the right lymph nodes. Uh, to invite the right one that should be draining the upper arm um, area where we get our vaccine. And, and we eventually managed to find this one after some, uh, we basically spent the whole first year uh, with with some really generous participants uh, and we figure out which one is uh, most likely is the draining one and how to locate it. Um, and that allowed us now to answer the really uh, an important question, and I'm very excited about that does actually influenza vaccination induce a general center response in humans. And we have always been uh, blocked so much in blood, and I was very, very excited about that, that we started to open that door. I have to say that at the time, actually, I did call, when I first started, I did call uh, Shane Crawley, actually, uh, by phone. I told him, Shane, I'm, I was very fascinated by your NHP studies, and I'm, 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 I want to do this in humans. And, uh, and he was very encouraging. And he said, yeah, that's, I'm sure that this will be doable. And, uh, and he gave us some uh, tips. And, and, and we, take, we took it from there. And, and, and these studies have continued uh, all the way for the first two years till we got our, uh, till of course the pandemic hit us. But um, we had our first paper published in, well, it was published during the pandemic. It was actually submitted that first paper describing our approach and the first results was submitted on March 2nd, oh. 2020. So it was actually a week before the things start to, we start to get the hint that this is going to be a shutdown. And, and that's when I submitted that paper. We did not realize that this is going to be going that far. I always, uh, and this is a true story, and many people here at WashU you know that, but I've always resisted to, to because I was very excited at the time with our influenza results and the potential to and the directions that we can go from here. So for me, in my mind, this is a short outbreak. COVID is going to be a short outbreak, should not change anything. And I resisted that for, for maybe, you know, at least for the second half of February. Or pro, and I, well, for the whole February, I was living in denial. Basically, I, I think, in, in, inside and inside and deep in myself, I knew that this is not going away like what I think it is. But I was trying to convince myself. At that time, I was really consumed to finishing our paper and submitted And once the paper submitted, I was felt more relieved But then I, we started quickly seeing the, the scale, and this is not this is not going to go away easily. So. Um, the advantages, and we can discuss that, is really uh, the w- what I always say. I was a bit disappointed by the shutdown and and our termination of all our flu studies, and everything has to be discontinued. But eventually, I was very disappointed for some time, and and, and But then I started to realize the opportunities that uh, at least scientific, but also. Um, uh, and yeah, the scientific opportunities that COVID brought for us and, and what kind of new studies we can do.
0: Further up on that, so since you were set up to essentially look at this draining lymph node, how have you used that now to look at infection or vaccination um, in, in the pandemic with COVID?
1: Yeah, so that's that's what we have, That that's exactly, what what helped us that we we were basically set for a vaccination setup. So infection, the draining lymph nodes are and especially for respiratory pathogens. These are in the uh, peripronchial lymph nodes, or uh, basically, it's uh, they are in the lung, and it's hard for us to access. I I definitely inquired about that, and we basically we <laughs> I was told there's some. It is doable. There is some degree of risk in it. Uh, that I'm not sure was really worth it at that time uh, or the questions were really, weren't that degree of risk that to to, to sample using the same lymph node, uh, ultrasound guided lymph node aspiration with needle to actually sample these nodes in the lung during a a bronchoscopy procedure. So I thought, okay, no, this is, infection was hard. So infection was, we did the same. uh, We looked like everyone else. We looked at the immune response in blood in patients, we were actually behind in Missouri, so we didn't get really patient samples, starting significant stuff in April, although other places, you know, on the coast, New York and Washington state started in February. So we are a bit behind in that. So uh, uh, we, we, there are already some data coming out at the time we are starting to get our samples. Um, but yeah, but when the vaccine became available, um, we really had the setup because it was giving intramuscular in the upper arm, same as a flu. So we had the whole setup really ready to go. And we, we the, the whole team was uh, very basically poised to, to, to jump on it. And we did, and we did actually did very, um, we started asking the, again, the same important question, simple ones that we have, uh, what kind of, um, how, how robust the response is. Uh, we, everyone can look in blood and look at the serum antibody titers, but are we, what's happening in the germinal center? And, and, and actually the, the influenza now, the influenza setup helped us in many ways because now we actually can appreciate influenza acts here as a control uh, uh, because we can see how with a, a very mild immunization like influenza, uh, how, what's the difference and provide like almost a scale for how robust the response after uh, after this, uh, the, at least the mRNA-based vaccines that the ones that are available now. So the, the reaction was really robust. I remember uh, Sherry uh, really mentioning that the lymph nodes are really different. And when I tried to, you know, to ask what, how different, she said, you know, they are just very big. And juicy. And that was the expression. They are just really. And, uh, and then you start reading uh, reports in CNN and other news outlets that this is really uh, uh, some people are actually having can feel the lymph nodes. And they said, wow, well, great. This makes sense. They are great. They are big.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That actually happened to me. Yeah. The, I didn't have any of the, on the second shot, I didn't have any other symptoms, but what I actually felt was twinging of the lymph nodes in my armpit. It was quite, it was, I've never actually felt that for a vaccine before.
1: Yeah. So it, in that case, we probably didn't need ultrasound, but, but we did use ultrasound still. <laughs> and we, uh, we, we had, uh, we did this in our healthcare workers. We did our first uh, study and, 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 uh, and and this is under revision now we have and we looked at the i mean it's you can tell the german centers are just uh, massively expanding in those uh, left nodes and then we see something that we didn't even see we see that multiple nodes involved uh in flu if we get one node we are really excited very happy and if flu if we get one node for one time point we are very very excited uh for here it's like uh we are like Spoiled by riches, like what? We, just with so much responses and multiple lymph nodes, and and to the extent that you know, you think uh, you would. Ex- to the extent that I want them to calm down, so I can actually now focus on, on finishing up the story <laughs> instead of having this open-ended. How when this actually still now till now after vaccination, people are vaccinated in uh, in December, and uh, German centers are still ongoing. So I'm not sure how long we'll be going. I'm, I'm, it'll be, it's exciting. I just at certain point, you think, okay, let's wrap it up.
0: So I guess, what does that mean if you have such an active germinal cell response for like the quantity of the B cell response or T cell response or the, quant- the I guess, the quality in a way of that response? Yeah. What does it mean to have a very active germinal cell response?
1: So that's a great question. So I, I guess we, we, we can go from the beginning as we know that if we, general centers are really important for not only making the, uh, which is the most famous part, is introducing mutations in the B cells uh, uh, or where B cells acquire mutations to actually refine their binding. Basically, we are making the cells better binders. And, and this is through a, a really a competition almost uh, between the cells and each other. And, and the ones that the best binder ones usually win, uh, at least uh, that's the, the dogma at the moment. And those are the ones that we will continue with for the rest of our lives as memory cells, as cells that, as long-lived cells that uh, secrete antibodies for us. So that's what happens when we get our childhood vaccines um we we get those vaccines and we for the most part we never need uh any uh, booster immunization for those and those because we have a beautiful immunization at that time that most likely induced our very robust germinal center that induced these memory cells and memory plasma cells memory b cells memory plasma cells that secreted all uh, that kept us you know safe till now uh so a more a very robust germinal center means that you have a bigger chance to induce more of those memory cells more of, and, and 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 you have a longer operation of of actually refining the process of refining which cells uh, can uh, the cells that this competition is basically becomes more protracted and that means that the cells will again theoretically will accumulate more mutations and that accumulation allows us to be even higher or stronger binding to to the vaccine and to the virus so becomes the antibodies secreted by these cells are even better protector uh, or can can mediate better or enhance protection so um, and then you get more of these cells uh, uh, in our our uh, pool of memory. So we are, we are in a way, it's, so far, there is, no, there is no disadvantage. There's a lot of good things that coming from this reaction continuing. And I, th- I think one of the things that we know that adjuvants, which are the materials that we add to vaccines to improve their, their uh, immunogenicity and to make them more potent, are actually, one of the most important part they do is they actually enhance the germinal center reaction. And many adjuvants are, that's how they, they improve vaccines. So now we have an, a vaccine that actually self, almost self-adjuvanted that can really drive that. So that could be, only can be good news for for durability of the response and for how uh, mature is the response. And that's something, obviously, we we should be able to tell in the next few months.
0: And what about, what does this mean for, when you have to boost or something like that, so I know people are starting to, I mean, chatter a little bit about antigenic sin and if we have to then come in with booster uh, vaccines that basically are co- covering new variants or what have you. Um, what does that mean if we have like really good germinal centers um, when we actually have sort of this another another viral um, vaccine against another viral strain?
1: Yeah, so that's. That's, uh, that's the, a really where the flu vaccinologist, immunologist and f- influenza people has been in really immersed for the last, uh, probably starting from the late 40s uh, or actually early 40s when they realized. So the virus was first isolated in, in 1933 and then we thought we have a vaccine in the in, in the late '30s, and the vaccine was working great. It was based on formalin inactivation of eggs of the virus that was grown in eggs, so it wasn't the the cleanest, but but it worked at the time. Uh, but then the when when the first variants, or not that case, and drifts st- drifted strains started to show up, then we realized that we have a problem, and it took us. Ten years at the time to realize the magnitude of the problem that you know that previous immunity that is used by this exposure might not be very helpful. At the time, uh, uh, Tony Francis, who was uh, an epidemiologist, very insightful epidemiologist at the time, came up with looking at you know uh, the the responses to infection uh, in in uh, across the multiple individuals over time, uh, but across different age groups and linking that to, to what was the most, at the time there were only a few viruses that were really characterized. So he linked that to the, what are the first virus that those individuals uh, likely exposed to? And he, he came up with a really very amazing uh, uh way and he i guess it's based on his religious upbringing he brought us the term original and genic son, uh just because you always respond in his and the point is you always respond to what you have been primed with or conditioned with or imprinted with in your childhood more strongly than what you respond to the more recent strains and in a way he considered the sun uh, at the time of course again he used only serology to 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 really come up with the term the concept of immune memory wasn't the clonal selection theory wasn't very very uh, established and it wasn't actually even known when he came up with these terms so it was just a, at the time lots lots of very plainly proposal about the cellular component of the immune response right. So now he comes with that, and we know that this is now immune memory. And so, going back or going forward for 80 years, and we are still, uh, I think, for influenza, we're still struggling with this point: is how we can uh, immunize a partly immune population. Because if you, if you, all of our success, most successful childhood vaccines, or vaccines in general, even the. the vaccines like yellow fever and others that are giving to adults those vaccines are giving to naive hosts and those are the most successful when we the challenge for us has been to give vaccine like influenza to and and similar story like in malaria the challenge is always when you give it to people who are actually partially immune and um, you know the story is malaria vaccines being uh, more uh Works better if you try it here in the in the US, but if you take it to the endemic population or endemic areas, they don't do as well uh, in terms of immunogenicity. I think it's clear that it's this pre-existing immunity are actually interfering with that, and that, uh, that was actually the topic that we were really trying to understand by looking at cellular immune responses to influenza. Now with with uh, with with COVID. With SARS-CoV-2, I should say uh, that it's uh, still unclear. Uh, we definitely that some of the variants of concern really can have uh, mutations that are you know, non-scientific term annoying in mm-hmm. terms of they are mutations and in, in places we are neutralizing antibodies, protein ones are targeting, but uh, we don't. I don't think we are at the point yet where we can decide that we really need to update the vaccine. Right. And if we, uh, is it really, uh, it seems that the vaccine, even if we lose some of the neutralizing capacity, there are lots of other antibody responses and other non-B cell responses, T right. cell responses that could provide that, 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 that edge of protection. Uh, so we could potentially be going for that direction with these viruses that they will, Mutate, you know, and they will change enough for us now that we have to update the vaccine, and and for that we now to um, our studies will be our our the the important question will emerge from that is what happens when you immunize with a novel strain or or in that case a variant from SARS-CoV-2, and now the situation will be different because we will have memory cells. That have targeted uh, that were again induced by a robust germinal center reaction against uh, the, the first circulating strain, the Washington strain, that most of the vaccines are based on. Uh, so in that case, now it can 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 the new immunization induce another robust germinal center that can recruit uh, naive flows that are only specific to those epitopes that are or the determinants and the new variants, and I think that. Based on our flu work, uh, which is again, that was the work that it seemed that the germinal center has that capacity that to actually engage not only the memory response, memory B cells that have been generated right. in the previous years, but also in a smaller fraction of cells, uh, also naive B cells can be engaged. And I think uh, from that, if I ext- extrapolate from that, I think that could be the case also the, with SARS CoV 2.
0: And does that sort of reflect on maybe why people that were previously infected with and had COVID you know, are now when they actually have sort of like a boost with the vaccine, we're still seeing good immune responses. So I think, you know, there was some fear right at the beginning that potentially if you were naturally infected, um, you would actually not have good immunity, as it were, and that that might even poison, as it were, the, the vaccination later on. But that does, at least in the quantity of the response, that doesn't seem to be happening. I don't know. Do you, are you going to do studies on the quality of the response after natural, then vaccination, natural infection, vaccination?
1: Yeah, so that actually happened by chance in our study that I mentioned because the people, the, the, the first few subjects or participants that we recruited, uh, some of them already had a uh, uh, pre confirmed, you know, previously confirmed infection, wow. and, and and so we didn't really design it this way, but those are healthcare workers, so they were exposed to the, to the early wave, um, and 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 uh, they were also recommended to get the vaccine like everyone else, right. And and then it was very clear when you look at their uh, response to the first dose that these people had the experience, and obviously they've had mounted and many many studies have shown that now they mounted a a great great to the first immunization, uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Actually, it okay. is a broad response. Uh, there is really no reason to think that that. And again, but but that was most likely a homologous uh, right. uh, a boost. So there's, it's a different part because let we are giving them the same engine that the, that case it's giving them in a different form. Right. Um, and, and infection remains the gold standard for any immune induction really. It's, right. it's mild, mild virus infection is probably more immunogenic than and better immunogenic than any other, any vaccine. And right. uh, most successful vaccines are actually just uh, live attenuated viruses, right? Right.
0: Okay, well, cool. That was very interesting. And um, just to talk a little bit generally as we're finishing up, I mean, how has the, you know, working on this, but also personally, how has, how have you fared in the past year? Um, you know, how has the pandemic affected hmm. you? And then thinking about vaccination and things like that, how do you sort of deal with or talk about vaccination with your friends and your family?
1: Yeah, that's. Or we can spend another episode about this. Yes, <laughs> that's. Uh, I don't know where to start from. So I have. I have three children who are in, and uh, in, uh, you know, in, in elementary school level, young elementary school level. So uh, that was has by far was extremely challenging. Uh, I, by by all measure, I never thought you would think that uh, having. Having a six, seven, or eight-year-old sit on an iPad for that would be like their dream, uh, which was—it's probably their dream. It just—I I don't think that was meant. I think it—it it, in their mind, this was an entertainment.
0: Yeah, yeah, not uh, school.
1: <laughs> yeah, not not really. It's not associated with. Knowledge or getting anywhere, so it was a challenge from that part to That was the the first part, especially, especially in the uh, starting this, you know, you know, in, in the first shock we had like April and last year wasn't really bad. It just August, September, and October and November. This this last fall semester, this this one was really brutal in terms of really adjusting the. Uh, you know, learning and adjusting and the changing between going to school and staying at home and trying to adjust uh, our lives. So that's basically and, and, you know, who, who is going, if, who is going to school, who's staying at home and, and if those who, who, for the ones that are going to school, who's going to pick them up and who's that and they are working full time and then the call that someone tested positive, everyone stays home and teacher tested positive and all of, yeah, we went through a lot. I think yeah. not only us, I'm sure we were all, I mean, everyone in the same stage went yeah. through uh, a lot. I mean, I have to be, and I'll be frank, I mean, being that I have flexibility at work helped me, it uh, helped yeah. our family because yeah. uh, I can, I can, I don't have to be. I'm not doing, thankfully, I'm not doing the experiments uh, with my hands and thankfully. But then I, I can only imagine how hard this was for postdocs or uh, graduate students who had families yeah. and had to go through this. This has been, uh, I you know, I'm just happy I'm not a postdoc with, at, at that <laughs> stage. It just, it just uh, I mean, I can only imagine. It, it just has been really hard. Yeah,
0: and do you still have family back in Egypt? How was that part of it?
1: Oh, this is, uh, you're, you're getting through the, through the, yeah, this is the part that we are still living through. Um, Right now, actually, it's really bad. Yeah. And I do still have family in Egypt, and um, I call them every day because it's just, um, uh, yeah, it is very bad because you, you know, you realize right away when you live in, you know, I've been living here for 15 years now, um, but you realize right away uh, social distancing and, 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 many many of the other the measures working from home and all of that it's almost a luxury for many places and yeah. definitely a luxury for developing countries and and that has been um, um hard to in the, when when you when you are you know when you are uh, when your livelihood is actually in, basically means that you go every day outside in the street and you know and and giving it the, the population density in cairo for example it just uh, that social distancing, the concept itself is not even there, and then add to that that masking is just not in the culture, and 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 again, it's still a luxury, and it's still the case up till now. It's amazing that lots lots of people that. It's amazing when you see that even if I'm, I've been away for 15 years, I've I I've known so many people in the last few months that passed away that I've known them personally, i met them. Wow. I, yeah. I spent time with them. Some of them are uh, relatives, yeah. uh, some are acquaintances and some are many, many friends have been affected in this. And just uh, one of those things that are, um, you know, get, making me concerned every day that, you know, and unfortunately it's, it's one of those things that you, traveling is not an easy it's doable it's not easy um and you wish if you can do something
0: yeah and
1: that's the hardest part that you you basically cannot do something and and you can only and it makes you just wonder when you see people here not getting the vaccine although they have the option it's very easy for them to get yeah. is i wish i wish if i can take some of this vaccine and give it to people that actually would stand on lines for it but yeah but there's not really a vaccine there. Um, and just, uh, uh, yeah, that's the part that we have um, every, probably every immigrant from any, many places, you hear the same stories from people coming from India, from Brazil, but this is, it's all, of, all the continent at the about home and hoping that at least the wave that they are going through right now, that vaccination so far have spared us here in the US. Yeah and yeah. this way we will will go and go and uh, without really much more damage than already did right
0: right well thank you very much it was great talking to you i'm always interested in your research and it's it's really cool to see how you are able to as you say sort of pivot into the SARS research using this almost a, a established platform that was very timely you know right right before the pandemic started so thank you very much
1: Thank you for having me. It was it, it an was absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Ollie's work using samples obtained from ultrasound-guided fine needle aspiration of draining lymph nodes of human volunteers following their mRNA vaccination against SARS-CoV-2 shows that this vaccination drives a robust germinal center reaction and promotes a durable and mature humoral response to SARS-CoV-2. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcasts or at lmtv.podbean.com.